couple of things that kind of jump out at me i'd say one is that innovation is a constant right we've seen so much change and so many new products coming in not all of these products succeed but you know failure is also a sign of of innovation uh, it means that people are trying different things and seeing what works so i think that one that's one thing we've learned is that at least for the foreseeable future we probably will continue to see innovation in the space uh, i'd argue that etfs are probably right now at least for the last 15 years been the most innovative space in finance in terms of new product ideas uh, just trying different types of strategies and so on Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, and I'm Managing Editor Heather Bell. I'm joined by my longtime colleague, Senior ETF Analyst, Sameet Roy. Hey, Sameet. Hey, Heather. How are you doing? All right. All right. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Looking forward to today's podcast. Me too. Today, we're speaking with Anaket Alal, the Head of ETF Data and Analytics at CFRA, Hi, Aniket. It's great to have you back on the pod. Hey, Heather. Hey, Sumit. Great to be back. Always enjoy um, talking ETFs and, and exchanging ideas with you. So great to be back. So I wanted to kick the discussion off with a little bit about SPY since it's about to turn 30 and by this time should probably have kids in a mortgage. It's been 30 years since the launch of SPY. So I was wondering, what do you see as the next 30 years holding for the ETF industry? And what are the largest themes you're seeing? Certainly been an interesting evolution. To me, there's a couple of things that are worth keeping an eye on. I think one is that we've really seen the industry evolve from being about low cost, beta, broad beta exposure to um you know, eventually then smart beta with much more targeted factor investing, thematic investing. And more recently, you know, more structured solutions like defined outcome ETFs. I actually think we're going to see more development and more um, kind of activity in, in the structured solution space. By structured solutions, what I mean is people using options and other types of derivatives to provide more structured outcomes to investors. And I really think that over the next five to 10 years and the future, I think that's going to be a huge area for growth. Not that low cost beta is going anywhere, but I think what I think I think that space is always going to grow. But I think the existing products will probably satisfy a lot of investors' needs. I think where we'll see more product introductions and likely more innovation is probably on the structured solution side. So um i think that's one area um where you know uh, we'll certainly see some innovation i think the other area that you know more broadly in terms of a 30 year trend is personalization uh if you look at the way the etf industry has evolved it's really been a case where the same products have been used by a very wide range of investors whether it's which is actually very unusual in, in financial markets right we've typically had very different types of products for kind of uh, high net worth or institutional investors versus retail. What's been unusual about ETFs and exciting about ETFs is the exact same product is used by um, a regular retail investor as well as an institutional um, investor. But I think that um, 
could change in the sense that I think we might start seeing some type of personalization. One, of course, we've seen direct indexing um, kind of grow, and some of those ideas may slowly seep into the ETF space where, you know, people take certain products and they get more personalized or kind of targeted. It may also happen in terms of just the platforms themselves, right? As robo-advising and kind of digital investing becomes larger, uh, more personalized portfolios, more customized solutions. So I think if I had to pick two broad trends, I'd say one is kind of a move towards more structured solutions, use of derivatives to provide more defined outcomes. And second, I think is um, personalization, both in terms of products as well as using technology. So what do you see as the biggest lessons from the last 30 years when, you know, the first ETF rolled out and changed pretty much everything in investing? <laughs> it's, again, it's been in interesting to see how, the as all of us have seen, how the industry has evolved. A couple of things that kind of jump out at me, I'd say one is that innovation is a constant, right? We've seen so much change and so many new products coming in. Not all of these products succeed, but, you know, failure is also a sign of, of innovation. Uh, it means that people are trying different things and seeing what works. So I think that one that's one thing we've learned is that at least for the foreseeable future, we probably will continue to see innovation in the space. Uh, I'd argue that ETFs are probably right now, at least for the last 15 years, been the most innovative space in finance in terms of new product ideas, uh, just trying different types of strategies and so on. So I think that's one lesson is that at least for the at least for the near term, five to 10 years, I would think that innovation is going to be a constant. And that's one lesson we've learned uh, in the ETF space. Now, every space matures eventually. So that may slow down. Um, you know, there's only going to be so much product um, that the market can take, or at, least, or at least that's what we've been saying for a few years. But uh, I think one lesson certainly is innovation is going to be a constant. The second, I think, interesting lesson is that what surprised me, at least, is how large and dominant the big players have been. And despite the tremendous growth in ETF investing, I've been surprised how the big two or three players have really retained a significant market share, um, you know, in BlackRock, Vanguard, and to some extent, State Street, because of the U.S., you know, equity franchise. And... Uh, it's quite staggering, actually, considering how much growth has been that they've still been able to maintain, you know, seventy or close to seventy or seventy plus percent market share uh, in the in the US ETF space. I think the reason other players have still done well is because the space is growing, so all boards have been rising. But um, and now, if we actually look at other industries, you know, there tends to be a kind of this winner take most kind of phenomenon, right? In as a space matures you tend to see a few big players kind of um, uh, being dominant and then the rest kind of having smaller market share. It'll be interesting to watch if that trend continues in the ETF space, but that's been one interesting lesson to look at is how market share breaks down and, and just how, what the competitive dynamics um, have been. Oh yeah. I, I've, like looking at the, I think Samit was digging into the league tables today, but like looking at the league tables over the years that we have on our site, um, just how there's been like these slow shifts, you know, State Street moving out of the number one spot, iShares moving into the number one spot, um, and Vanguard now, I believe, at number two. 
So yeah. 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 I was looking at that. And I think, you know, in the next three or four years, we'll probably see Vanguard surpass BlackRock, but Anakit, you made a lot of interesting points about the future and, you know, I agree. Innovation is going to continue, obviously. But one thing that I'm really curious to see happen or, or whether it's going to happen in the future is how the competitive landscape is going to evolve with regard to ETFs. Because really, there's been no big competition when it comes to ETFs. ETFs have just been sucking assets out of mutual funds over the last years, decades. But going forward, are we going to see legitimate competition you know attack etfs and i recently saw an ad for this fidelity uh product it was called um fidelity solo fid folios i don't know if you you've heard of that but it's basically fidelity's direct indexing product and you can create a portfolio in a second and you know add and subtract different stocks and you know we've heard about direct indexing being a threat for a while now but I think there's been limitations with regard to technology and user interface, but with Fidelity coming into this market and really simplifying it, I think, you know, that could really, you know, be a competition for ETFs, you know, going forward. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, on the first point about the market share, if we look at two things in combination, right? One is that the ETF space is growing tremendously and has taken assets from other spaces. And then the second fact is that two, three players dominate. I mean, those two things in combination mean it's an existential threat to other to other firms, right? Because that's just not, I don't see how that's a very sustainable thing in the long run for the industry. If, if everything moves into one, all the assets move into one product type and just two or three firms have all the assets. So I think something has to give. I think eventually, I think there will be some moderation of market share um, only because I think that's, you know, if this trend continues, it's not going to be sustainable more broadly for the industry. And I think eventually a lot of more traditional mutual fund managers will succeed in getting back some market share because there are investors and advisors who currently invest in their products who may want to stay with them. So I think we will see some moderation in market share. Um, and I think that's going to be a trend to watch. Uh, on the On the direct indexing point, yes, I think that goes to my what I was mentioning earlier about personalization, I think the confluence of technology and investing is just going to grow. And I, I do agree with you that a lot of the big, uh, we saw Schwab also kind of um, indicating they're going to invest more in, in direct indexing. So I think that trend is going to grow. I, I see it more as a complement to ETFs. I think what may be under more, essentially what's happening is traditional SMAs and those kind of things are essentially getting indexed or personalized. So I think there's new assets outside of the ETF space that may get pulled into the direct indexing space first before ETFs could impact it. So you previously you wrote about the mutual fund to ETF conversions. Um, and I kind of followed up with an article where I talked to Eric Balchunas and he was um, from Bloomberg, and he was talking about how he sees it as a one like mutual fund to ETF conversions could have like one trillion in assets in within ten years, and um, I just thought that was a really kind of significant number. Um, it it hasn't really gone very far yet, but it seems like it could grow a lot more. I, I, do you think one trillion is possible in ten years? <laughs> 
it's it seems it seems possible because given the size current size of the mutual fund industry giving given where the trends are what's happening in conversions which is why in my article i kind of said it this could you know go from being a trickle to a tidal wave and i think to me one trillion would certainly count as a tidal wave um i i i do think that directionally that seems correct uh, but i think the point i missed in my article and i think you actually highlighted in some of the work you did was it's not just mutual funds it could be smas it could be other pools of assets that get converted to etfs and so then in aggregate that that could be a significant trend now you know um it's always hard to predict what's going to happen because you know we've seen in the past sometimes something start and then they kind of hit um hit roadblocks you know i think esg is a good example of that but um yeah but directionally at this point i, I it seems likely that that the trend will continue and i think the numbers could be quite significant what i thought was interesting was uh on his podcast uh eric was talking to um the heads of i believe it was alpha architect exchange traded concepts and uh Taroso investments and they were talking about how a lot of their demand was coming from um you know smaller um kind of issuers of mutual funds looking to break into the ETF space with their with their funds and i hadn't really thought about how uh how pervasive that um desire to uh convert uh mutual funds into ETFs would be among across the board there yeah i think there's two things one is converting existing um pools of assets into etfs i think there's also a separate trend which is a lot of rias may have had ideas for strategies and things that they believe in or are passionate about or want to bring to market and maybe didn't have the avenue to do that earlier and now with the firms like you know these out of the box kind of providers there are more opportunities for them to bring new ideas to market and and test them and market them and reach a wider audience through an exchange traded product so i think both of these things are probably good trends for the, the firms that you mentioned one is the conversions and second is kind of more the democratization of being able to bring products to market now bringing a product to market and actually gathering assets are two different things so um you know i think some of those firms may struggle with with gathering assets or getting significant size but certainly some could could break through yeah absolutely it can be kind of hit or miss with where the assets end up with some of those um active funds that launch um in the in the space from you know with like kind of like very specific strategies um so you had also written about defined outcome ETFs. And I mean, I think it makes sense that they had a really good year given everything else was kind of <laughs> scary to invest in um, under the market conditions. Um, how, how, like, what do you see as the future path for these products? Because they offer that buffer um, to the downside and then they cap the upside. Um, and I, I mean, I guess that, kind of harks back to your discussion, your reference to uh, structured products earlier that use options. Yeah, you know, I think on our last podcast, we discussed this concept that, which I thought was interesting, where we discussed this concept that 
sometimes you have certain strategies that kind of become hot depending on the market environment, right? We saw that with currency hedged, you know, a few years ago, and then we saw that with low vol um, some time ago, and again recently uh, in 2022. And sometimes these things go in and out of favor. So, you know, currency hedging was hot for a while. Um, and then, of course, when the dollar wasn't as strong anymore, it, it kind of went away. With defined outcome, again, I think it it is a product of the times in the sense that just the spirit of what happened in 2022 and with investors being concerned about geopolitical risk and, and rates and inflation, the products were obviously well-timed. Having said that, I do think with this set of products, I do see a little bit more of a structural shift here that I think is important to keep tabs on, which is that it's not just broad beta exposure, the, the concept of being able to tailor outcomes a little bit using options to me is is an important, I think, trend to keep an eye on. And so I, I think it I think the appeal does go beyond just being right for the times. I think I think the appeal is also more broadly creating more tailored or structured outcomes for investors where they can pick you know what they want based on their risk return profile and i think i think that's why i find this particular product category quite quite interesting uh, of course it does mean that product complexity is going up in the industry and that means there's going to be more need for education and and um, in the kind of services that all of you provide um, but um, yeah i i do think that's why i think this product that's one of the reasons i highlight to define outcome is not just because it's Right for the times, I think it's also a sign of how the industry is evolving in terms of um, structuring outcomes for investors. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting, you know, how different the marketing for something like a defined outcome ETF is versus like a thematic ETF like ARC. It's 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 a much more complicated product, and you have to understand you know the options and all of that. Do you guys are you guys aware of? how much you know money went into these products last year because i'm not 100% sure but you have to think that ever since define outcome etfs came to market 2022 was the worst year for the market right they weren't around in 2008 2009 am i wrong about that they, they launched launched a couple of years ago yeah we estimated sorry had they interrupted you there but we estimated that they took in about 10 billion in flows in 2022 which heather i think is similar to what you estimated as well? Yeah, I was looking specifically, I believe, at um, the defined outcome ETFs right. tracking uh, S&P 500. And I think that's where the bulk of the flows went. And that was about 9 billion, I believe. Right, right. So we had we had it under about 10 billion, which, you know, if you if you look at low wall, took in about 10 billion in 2022. And that's a three times bigger asset base than defined outcome. So, I mean, essentially defined outcome doubled its asset base in 2022. Yeah, that, that's a great haul. Yeah, it is. I suspect there were a lot of like retirees and who are looking to protect um, their assets too that were using that. Um, so I'm wondering kind of if the baby boomers might drive a lot of the flows into those products. I don't know if that's wild speculation. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, they, they may want to stay invested while still protecting downside, right? And I know some of these providers have been marketing it as a bond alternative, which is, I think, interesting way for them to market it. So, um, yeah, I think that I think it'll be interesting space to keep an eye on for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it is interesting, especially since 2022 was the year of Define Outcome ETFs. 
perfect year for those ETFs. But at the same time, we're suddenly in an environment where fixed income is giving you solid returns, you know, four or five percent plus. So they do have competition if they're going to market themselves as a bond alternative. Absolutely. You're right. Yeah. With, with what happened in fixed income, I think fixed income is going to be attractive this year. So I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how those two, um, you know, how those two categories compete this year. Definitely. There was, you also wrote a piece on the politicization. I don't know if I said that correctly um, of ETFs. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, just how um, you were talking about how like there's been more political tilts to ETFs that have come out. And then also um, the, uh, excuse me, uh, the, you know, backlash against ESG uh, and, you know, the rise of anti-woke strategies and things like that. Um, is there like, would you like to comment maybe on like the overall trend there? I, I think this is going to be a very important trend in the industry. I, I really do think that for the first time, just given the size of the industry, firstly, and also the nature in which invest now, of course, this is not exclusive just to ETFs, but just given the growth in ETFs and the fact that ESG is, you know, ETFs are a big way to access ESG. I think it is going to affect affect the ETF space specifically. I think there's two things to look at. One is in ETF construction. In other words, when ETFs or, the, or their underlying indices are constructed, which sectors or stocks or companies are excluded and included, that could get politicized. And that could actually impact even the index providers because then the question may be raised, why do you including some sectors? Do you firstly, do you exclude some sectors entirely or do you just underweight them, right? So there could be a whole discussion around ETF and index construction. And then the related issue is, is shareholder voting. In other words, as these ETF issuers become large, own larger and larger parts of various companies, right? Because uh, indexing is growing, how do they vote on various issues, and how do they kind of um, do they vote themselves? Do they delegate that pass on those you know that voting to their end investors? So I think there's two separate issues here. One is the construction of the funds and the underlying indices. And second is how those funds vote um, uh, in company shareholder meetings and so on. And I think both of these could get um, polit politicized. And we're already seeing that. I think this is actually a big story. Another interesting thing to keep an eye on is, could this actually become a differentiator when selecting an ETF? Because so far, if you've looked at the way investors have, or even analysts look at choosing ETFs, a lot of it is things like cost and returns and, um, you know, those kind of factors, right? But there could be in the future other factors like, okay, how does that ETF manager vote? Or how does that ETF manager actually view ESG and factor that into ETF construction? And so those could actually become differentiators in product choice, um, especially if, if investors get... Um, more kind of bring their political or social views into the investing choices. So I think this is really going to be, I, th I think it's a very important development for the industry and, and one that could have broader implications. Yeah. I also think it like touches back to your, to your previous discussion of personalization, you know, expressing your views through your investments to a certain degree. 
Absolutely, yes. I, that's a good point. I think there could be some connections there. Yeah, we could. Yeah, I mean, these these are all, you know, you mentioned looking ahead to the next 30 years. I think these are all things that are going to uh, going, going to have an impact. Well, one of the things I was wondering about is it seems like, um, you know, climate change has become more of a risk. So in with the backlash against ESG, is that to a certain extent kind of... Um, given the fact that like pension funds um, in different states are, you know, backing are being uh, mandated to step away from ESG strategies, does that interfere with like risk management um, approaches? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, the challenge that the asset managers are going to face is that different states are going to pull in 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 different directions. Actually, the, the Economist magazine had a really nice. Um, you know, article on this, which is that if you look at some of the big states like California and Florida and so on, they're becoming more um, purist in a way in terms of politically, right? So, um, and if that if that happens, these, by the way, also happen to the biggest states in terms of obviously pool of assets, right? So essentially what could happen here is as these states pull in different directions politically, right? California could kind of view itself as you know, advancing a more liberal agenda and Florida could could view itself as advancing a more conservative agenda. And certainly we've seen that uh, play out recently. Then then the the pulls on each of the asset managers are going to be in a completely opposite direction. And then how do they kind of balance balance that out? I think that's the political lens. From a risk lens, um, to your question, I think the question is how is how is climate change going to be built into risk models? Most risk models today don't really factor that in. Most risk models today are built around quantitative factors, you know, things like um, you know value and, and size and momentum. These are kind of the risk factors you would see in a typical kind of risk factor model, right? I don't think there's risk models have evolved yet to include uh, ESG and climate and other things. So I think I think that's still to be determined and and kind of um, I, I don't know if we have an answer yet on how that's going to evolve. So there's two separate things. One is how do the quant models evolve? And then the separate issue is how do they deal with this issue politically where certain states in the US are going to pull in different directions. And um, it looks like BlackRock has taken more of a stand with this sticking with their ESG stance. Whereas some providers like Vanguard, for example, are more probably going down the middle and saying, look, we're just indexers. We don't have a view on it as much. So um, I think that's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's so many dimensions to look at with this ESG battle, right? We're seeing it at the state pension fund level, but that's all. That's just a small section of the whole asset management industry. And then beyond just the asset management level, at the company level, Companies are instituting ESG policies on their own, regardless of what, you know, a fund or an asset manager may be doing. And I think that trend, we haven't really seen any reversal of that trend, right? We saw Disney kind of push back against a certain law in Florida uh, for social issues. And, you know, Florida tried to retaliate, but that didn't really change Disney's view. And in general, we're seeing the majority of companies in the S&P 500 instituting sustainable policies and that's really not changing. That is true. That yeah, if you look at corporate America more broadly, it is 
trending in, in that direction. That's absolutely true. Though I would argue that it's much less than in Europe. And even if you look at ETF flows in Europe, it seems like ESG has got much more traction there than in the US. True, true. Absolutely. Um, we're going to have to end it there. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Anna Kett. This was a really fun conversation. Sure. Thanks for having me. Always enjoy uh, talking ETFs and catching up with all of you. Just a reminder to our listeners, the ETF.com awards are up and running again. Go to awards.etf.com to nominate your favorites. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any other major podcast platform. See you next week.